as we sing a song like that, Majesty, we, for a moment, I think, are taken into the right place in how we think about God. We regularly miss the point of who He is. We sometimes fall into a trap of thinking that God is like we are because we've been created in His image. God is holy. He is beyond our thinking. He is so much more than we think. He wants to change us to be more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might think more like God and that we might be more like Him because we so regularly miss the point. In our best moments, we think right thoughts about God, about His greatness, and about the, the sheer magnitude of His grace toward us, His undeserved love and favor toward us. The Word of God is a collection of stories, of course, and doctrine, but in particular, stories of human beings having an awakening of who God really is. And regularly as we watch their stories unfold, we realize they had no idea who God really was. And we think, how could you have missed it? And then we go through the week that is to come, and we look at ourselves and we realize, wow, how did I miss it? How, do, how have I fallen so short of, of the nature and characteristic of God in my thinking and in my acting, my behavior. Jonah is one of those types of stories. In Jonah, the story of God is more than Jonah wants him to be. God wants to make friends and family of enemies. Did you know that? You know that. You know the doctrine. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We know all that, that doctrine. But Jonah was about to encounter the reality of that doctrine. And I think most of us are fine with the idea that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What I think we find a struggle with sometimes is that God wants to make friends of our enemies. And that's a different matter. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 3. Because reconciling enemies is how God rolls. That's, that's his MO. That's his modus operandi. By the way, we're talking about the Old Testament God this morning. Not a different God than the New Testament God, although people try to discuss that with us and debate it with us. They regularly say the God of the Old Testament seems to be different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament seems to be so much more gracious and loving and kind and, and, and willing to reconcile. Well, that's because they don't know their Bibles. If you read about the God of the Old Testament, you find out he is a God who is anxious to reconcile. He is a God who is loving and compassionate and long-suffering and gracious. That's the God we like for ourselves. Sometimes we don't want that God for the people who have really hurt us, who have really abused us, or who are presently abusing us. We don't want that God to show up and help that person. That was Jonah's problem. We have enough trouble, I think, staying in good space with friends and repairing minor affronts. Many of us have long ago written some people out of our lives. And we have sent a very, very bad reference to God about them hoping that he'll write them out of his life as well. You may wish to believe that some people are too bad, too wicked, too far gone, 
from deserving God's mercy and forgiveness. But God isn't there with you. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, we find a very different agenda that God has. We'd like to think that if there is any justice sometimes in this world, in this universe, that that person who has hurt us so badly, damaged us so profoundly, deserves the, to feel the full fury of God. That's how Jonah felt about the Assyrians who populated the city of Nineveh. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles... Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is one of the great stories of repentance and turning to God that is recorded in the scriptures. Our Father, as we, as we now um, turn our attention to looking deeply at this text, and allowing your spirit to, to massage our hearts and, and, and work around in our minds this morning, Father. I pray that you would give us a new awareness of your greatness, of your majesty. May we be humbled in your presence this morning, Father, as we think about how far we have fallen short of the glory of God. How great you are, how gracious you are, how compassionate you are, how merciful you are, how forgiving you are, how loving you are, how much you care. Oh God, I just pray for us this morning as a people gathered here, gathered here in this place who, who have per, perhaps uh, representatives here have, have lost a bit of their footing towards you. Perhaps, Lord, there's been difficulties through this week and there's been a wondering in hearts. Do you care? Do you, are you compassionate? Are you merciful? Do you forgive? Can I be forgiven? Did I, did I fall too far short of your glory that you, you've turned your back on me and, and you, you won't turn back to me? Father, I, I pray that, that all of us this morning will have a, a fresh awareness of the truth about who you are. Lord God, reveal yourself to us. You are a God who reveals yourself. This is the revelation of God unfolding before us this morning. Let us not miss the point, Lord. And let us incorporate into our lives the truths that we find this morning, I pray. By the work of your Spirit, as we urgently call out together, me speaking to you, but all of God's people in here, calling to you from our hearts, oh God, speak to us. We're listening. Your servants are listening this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this is perhaps the greatest evangelistic event that has ever been known. Capturing a whole city for God. 
and all people, it says here, from the least to the greatest. Now, I've heard of great campaigns where there were great responses to the gospel. Thousands upon thousands of people. I have never heard, with the exception of this, where everybody, from the least to the greatest, turned and responded to the message from God and turned to him. If we want to uh, run by the statistics of this, we know that 120,000 people turned to God on the basis of that sermon. How do I know that? Because in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says there are more than, well, more than 120,000 people. And it said all of them, from the least to the greatest. So I want to share with you this morning that the repentance of the Ninevites teaches us three timeless truths about God's determination to overthrow all peoples and cultures. There's a play on this word in the sermon. In, in verse 4, I, we're, we're going to zero in on this one word and work ourselves around it all, all this morning. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. I'm not going to uh, open that word up entirely to you right now, but all I, all I want to say to you is that this is the determination of God. This is who God is. This is the will of God for all people, that he would overturn their lives, overthrow their lives, um, take over hearts, turn around, and you're involved in his plan. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are involved in God's plan to overthrow the hearts of the people of this world, to overturn their hearts, to take over their hearts. But let me say this first of all, that you won't be useful in ministry for God until you have been reconciled by the ministry of God. Now, how bad was Nineveh? Um, you could do lots of research on the Assyrian Empire and the Ninevites, but suffice it to say that, that they were very, very bad. They were a very, very wicked people. Um, uh, the, the Assyrian Empire dominated the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Judeans, the Israelites, for, for numbers of years. They were fierce, fierce warriors. And they were savvy, savvy marketers. They were the known merchants of that ancient Near East time. They outstripped in marketing the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Israelites. They, they were, um, were take-no-prisoners kinds of salesmen. And as they moved throughout the empire, they acquired for themselves great wealth and great riches by shrewdly, and might I say dishonestly, marketing their wares. When you study the, uh, the Assyrian Empire, you'll find great relief carvings that demonstrate that they were fierce, take-no-prisoner warriors. There are, are relief, uh, um, uh, relief uh, um, uh, artwork in museums around the world from the Assyrian Empire that shows that when they captured enemies, they would stake them to the ground and skin them alive. There's pictures of them flaying their enemies. They would drive, um, they would lay their enemies in fields, stake them in fields, and, and, and drive what would be modern-day combines over their enemies. They were a wicked, wicked people, and Jonah knew of their reputation. And as far as Jonah was concerned, nobody that wicked deserved anything good from God. In fact, Jonah, as... As, uh, as Keith Edwards uh, mentioned to me uh, a few days ago, Jonah actually wanted Nahum's job. Now, if you know anything about the prophet Nahum, which is two prophets from Jonah, Micah, and then you turn over your pages and you come to Nahum, this whole prophecy is an oracle with respect to God's judgment against Nineveh, against the Assyrians. Jonah would have loved to have that job. Give me Nahum's job. 
Because I want to preach about judgment. It says here, the, the anger of the Lord against Nineveh. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance. It's filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Jonah's saying, why didn't I get that gig? That's the one I wanted. Instead, God goes and asks me to proclaim a message of repentance to the Ninevites. God's mission and task and journey don't always make sense from our vantage point. You've probably figured that out already in your life. Why is God asking me to do this? Why does God want me to do that? Why would God want me to speak to that person? Of all the people that, that he could ask me to speak to, why is it that person that he keeps zeroing my heart in? Why would I reach out to them, God? They've been so brutal. I can just hear his argument with God. They've disregarded your word. They've disregarded your ways. They've disregarded your will, oh Lord. I, I mean, I'm sure he probably turned it into a, 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 a psalm kind of lilt. I, I'm wondering if, if as the words were coming off his lips, they've disregarded your word. They've disregarded your ways. They've disregarded your will, oh Lord. As the word of God comes to Jonah a second time. Because... He had disregarded God's word. He had disregarded God's ways. He had disregarded God's will. What made him so special that God should love him or care for him or be compassionate toward him or forgive him? If we are to go beyond Jonah, and I recommend that we do, we must face the truth about our own disobedience. When we are thinking about those people who have hurt us and damaged us and have been so wicked and have disregarded everything there is that's good about God, we better remember that regularly the word of the Lord has to come to us a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Am I preaching to a choir here this morning? Or is it only me? He's the one who disregarded God's word to him and fled from the very presence of God, wanting to get away from God. I, I, I mean, it was, it was one of those just, oops, sorry, it's a mistake. After all, God, you know, I, I got on a ship and, I mean, I didn't do anything bad to anybody. He was pretty proud of his own self-righteousness. Oh, sure, I wasn't listening to your word and I was running from your face, but I didn't actually do anything bad like flay my enemies or rip people off in marketing. He put a whole ship in peril. He disregarded the lives of the, uh, of the men who were on that ship. We so regularly excuse our own self-righteousness because we are so much more moral than those around us who disregard God. Jonah's own disobedience had led him to the precipice of death. Did we not notice? And why is that? Because the word of God says this, the wages of sin is death. And I want to draw something to your attention. The word sin there is singular. So next time you repeat that verse, say it this way, the wages of one sin the wages of a sin is death. Because that's how God views it. It's God's word. So as you look at the multiple multitude of sins of someone who's too far from God and 
think about your own life as, oh, one sin here or there. Please understand that the wages of one sin is death. So each one of us was at the precipice of death unless the compassionate grace and mercy of God were to have rescued us. But the grace of God, is it not true? But the grace of God, the gift of God, is salvation. So, you won't be useful in ministry for God until you have been reconciled by the ministry of God and have come to terms with that. There's a second um, timeless truth I want to point out this morning, and it's this. All human communities are important to God. If history, if the history of redemption teaches us anything as we look through the scriptures, the simple truth is that God cares about all people. God cares about his entire crea creation. And so he decides to send Jonah the prophet to Nineveh, which is a city in Assyria. It's the capital city of Assyria. And capital cities are generally the pace setter for the whole country. That's where the cultural center of any country is, is generally in its capital city. That's why uh, God is strategic about the great cities of the world. It matters to God that, that, that God's people care about the, the great cities because he cares about the cities of the world. How, how, just how great was Nineveh? Nineveh, by the way, was a 500-mile or one-month journey from Jerusalem to Nineveh. It was... Um, a city that had a perimeter wall that was seven and a half miles long. It's at about 11 kilometers for the younger ones among us. As you already heard, it had more than 120,000 people and many animals as well. And, and God highlighted that in his word and many cattle. God cares about all of his creation The, the reality is the Assyrians were a dominant nation for about 270 years. That's a long time. To be on top of the world. They were the number one nation. During the era of 1356 to 1197 B.C. and 745 to 621 B.C. It says that a journey there took three days. And I think in context here what it meant is that it would take the prophet three days to go to all of the public squares in Nineveh and proclaim the message of God. See, I, I don't think all 120 plus thousand people gathered in some grand mob. Jonah, it says, proclaimed, went into the city going from public square to public square, attracting crowds of people. It took him three days to go to all the public squares and proclaim this great message of repentance. The city itself, square acreage, was 1,730 acres. There were 15 city gates. These gates had massive statues, which were fashioned in, in the, the, uh, the body was pow a powerful bull with, with uh, heads of men on them. It was a foreboding city. As you came upon the city of Nineveh, the fierceness was obvious. It was, it was constructed for war. The walls were not only impenetrable, but all of the homes were constructed in such a way as all of the doorways aimed into the center of the city. And the backs of the houses were all fashioned with, as if they were bunkers. They sent a message to the world. Nobody's getting in here. Nobody's penetrating this city. Nobody's going to change the way we are. We're on top of the world. 
But what your translation may not show you that I think is very significant is that in verse um, 3, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. The original words there are actually Elohim Gadal. You know your Hebrew well enough to know when I say Elohim what that is. It is what? Hmm? God. What it literally says here is that a city, it is a city great to God. Elohim Gadal. Now, the reason the translators have chosen, many modern translators have chosen to translate the way they have in your Bible is because it, it could be an idiom that simply meant great in comparison because God is so great and all of that. But I think it, it requires of us to pause and think and stop. God called Nineveh a great city to him. And I think this helps us to fashion the reality of the doctrine that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. Is that not what we believe? God is not willing that any, I underlined that, to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to turn around, to be overturned, to be overthrown, to have their hearts overthrown by the greatness of God. They were to God, Elohim, Gadol, great. And I want to submit to you that all of the creation matters to God and is great to God because he created it. And we need to put on God's lenses and look at our world through God's eyes and understand that this is how he declares it. Reconciling with someone who has turned their back or wronged you might not be important or desired by you, but it is very important to your Heavenly Father. That's what this says to me. This was a city to God great, but far from Him. It's true, they were far from Him. But when the Apostle Paul got up in Mars Hill and started preaching, to the, uh, to the Athenians. He said, well, you may be far from God. Remember what he said? But God is not far from you. Wow. You mean God cares? Oh, he cares. Our world might be far from God. Our cities might be far from God. Toronto, that... Great city to God might be far from God, but God is not far from that city. People far from God aren't reconciled to him, you see, because they don't know about him. Do we understand that? People are the way they are because by nature we are fallen and prone to wickedness. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians... The Israelites outside of God. The Canadians. Apart from God, live wickedly. Why is that? Because they don't know God. That was the point. Go and tell them. Jonah, go and tell them. I'm a missionary, God. Go and tell them. I want them to know about me. They may be far from me, but I'm not far from them. They will see me if you go and tell them. God wants them to know that there is a true king of the universe and that he offers a better way to live. Well, there's a third aspect to this this morning. A third timeless truth. And that is this, that true reconciliation between God and people follows the same pattern. This is one of the most outstanding records 
uh, of the pattern of reconciliation, of how uh, someone repents before God and is received by God. This is, in story form, the doctrine of reconciliation, of redemption, of repentance. Reconciliation of the far from God is not only desired, it's possible. That's what the good news is here. I, I think many of us are saying, wait a second, you know, we read through this text, and yes, they turned to God, but what about their wickedness? What about their wrongs? Something just seems too easy about all of this. Did God miss what they were like? Oh, when we look back at chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Jonah, the very reason that, that God came to Jonah is he says, their wickedness has come up before me. Now, nothing escapes the view of God. This whole issue is about God, the God of the universe who's been offended. I mean, God starts out in this text, in this, in this book, by saying, I'm offended, Jonah. I want you to know that I'm offended by the wickedness of the Assyrians. God's not got soft or, or, or gooey or passive in all of this. No, I'm offended by their wickedness. You need to know that, Jonah. No one's overlooked. Justice is at issue here. Let's not miss that. But there are key questions that are addressed in this particular story. They are this. What will God do about wicked people? And I think there's one thing that's very certain here, and that is this. The clock is ticking. Forty more days. Okay? I don't want you to get the wrong impression about God when we talk about compassion and mercy and forgiveness and all of that. That's all absolutely true, but let's not miss the point. The clock is ticking on everyone's life who is far from God. The second question that this key question this addresses is what will they do? What will wicked people do when God's message is presented to them? No one gets a free pass. God is ultimately just. And the third big question, which is going to be the question for us, is what should God's people do? Well, I think the answer is we should make sure that everyone has an opportunity to benefit from the grace and mercy of God, don't you think? Well, let's look very carefully here then at how reconciliation happens. This is how it happens in this story and every story. This is how it happened in your story. This is how it will happen in the people you're praying for. It always happens this way. There's no different pattern. And this will set up for you exactly how it works. And the first is this. God always sends his message. Reconciliation can't happen in the absence of God's message. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul to the Romans said, how are they going to hear if they don't have a preacher? And how are they going to have a preacher if nobody sends the preacher? That's why we have such a commitment and passion to the missionary enterprise here at Calvary Baptist Church. Because God wants to send his message. God is a missionary God. And so he gives literally five Hebrew words was that the entirety of the sermon that, that, that the prophet Jonah preached? I don't know. It might have been. Five Hebrew words. I'll paraphrase them for you. This is the message the Ninevites heard in five words. The clock ticks. Think. Overturn. All right? That's basically what, what Jonah preached. The clock ticks. Think. Overturn. Uh, from public square to public square. The clock ticks. Think overturn. I am the messenger of the living God. The clock ticks. Think overturn. That's the message. God's message. God's word. If you read at the early part of, the, of this chapter, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time and he says, go and preach a message I will give you. 
This wasn't Jonah's message. It's not the preacher's message. It's not the missionary's message. It's God's message if it's God's word. God says, I'll give you the message. It'll be the word of God. That's why the Apostle Paul looked at young Timothy and said, Timothy, I'm going to give you some, some of my best advice. Preach the word. Be in season and out of season. Uh, my uncle was an evangelist, and every time he showed up in my presence, he would look at me and say, Rick, preach the word. He would write me cards and write me notes and send me things, and all, every time he would write on it, preach the word. It, I, I, it was constantly embedded in my mind and in my heart and in all of my being from my uncle who said, Rick, preach the word. It was never anything else. Don't preach books. Don't preach ideas. Don't preach what someone else thinks. Preach the word of God. And that was what Paul said to young Timothy. It's because the message of Christ. We preach, Paul said, Christ crucified. Why? Because it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. God's word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut through right through the bone to the marrow. When, when Jonah's preaching, a clock ticks, think, overturn. He was putting a sword right through the bone, right to the marrow of their lives. You think that there would have been 120 plus thousand people become converts of Jonah? Not in your life. But because of God's word. God's word is powerful. And so when God's word is presented to people, there is always the requirement of them facing the fork in the road of their lives. Am I going to listen to this or am I going to continue to live the way I've been living? That's what it does. God's word presents a fork in the road. Am I going to continue to be destroyed by the deadening sin in my life? Don't, don't fool yourselves. People are not satisfied with their lives. They know there's something wrong. They just can't put their finger on it. They know that there, there must be something more. They're, they're incredibly dissatisfied. And so when God's message of an alternative comes along, you want to live your life the way you've been living it? How's that working for you? Or do you want to turn to God's way and follow God? God is a better way, the true king, the creator, the one who made you. Do you want to turn his way, go his way? And so there's a fork in the road. Do you want to be the way you are or do you want to be changed? This wasn't a message of doom, by the way. The clock ticks, think overturn. It sounds like a message of doom. It sounds like a message of judgment, but it's really a message of grace. Think about it this way. God doesn't have to send that message. He can just keep it to himself. In 40 days, I'm going to destroy this city, and I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to send a messenger. And sometimes we want to circumvent the message. I don't want to go and tell them. Jonah didn't want to go tell them. I'm not going to be that prophet. I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to give up my life and go and tell some people group somewhere where I don't even know, I don't even care about. They don't even think like me. They don't eat like me. I don't want to go tell them anything about God. You know what we're doing when we're doing that? In effect, saying they can be damned. Pregnant within this word overturned and would be well known to the original audience is the possibility, the invitation to turn away and to turn or be overturned or to be turned upside down. That's what, there's a, there's a double meaning to this word. Remember I told you we're going to camp on this word a bit. This word overthrown, translated by King James, or overturned by NIV or NASB, or, uh, the idea is you will be overthrown by the judgment of God or you can turn around, be turned upside down, be changed. There's this invitation that was presented to them. The clock ticks. Now you will either die or turn to God. That's your 
alternative. And the invitation of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness was placed before them. This is justice. To face the consequences of evil or turn to God for mercy. God's response to fallenness and its normal evil outcomes. Don't we believe the scriptures, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. All we like sheep, not some, have gone our own way. We've all been where Nineveh was. In Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. And so what does it say they did? It says the Ninevites believed God. Are you kidding me? On the first day Jonah started into the city, the Ninevites believed God. They, They didn't have to hear the word of God a second, first time, a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, a seventh time. I know that the um, statistics on reaching people out there is everybody has to have at least seven contacts with the gospel before they're going to say, I do to God. Well, those are statistics, but not God's word. The first time these people heard the message of God, they turned to God. They turned from their sin. They turned from them to God from their sin and their self and their idols. And by the way, the, the believing God is what they actually, they actually believed the word of God was true. They actually believed the message. They didn't just believe that there was a God. They were already that kind of people. They believed God and turned to him. So much so that it says they fasted. They, they immediately did what, what Jesus said you must do to be his disciple. Deny, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. They practiced self-denial. They put sackcloth on themselves, which is a coarse goat hair kind of heavy cloth, which was rough and abrasive and horrible to wear. And basically it was a symbol of repentance whereby you were saying, I am turning my back on comforts and pleasures that I might concentrate and focus entirely on God. This is an incredible turnaround. These are the marks of repentance. And then it says the king himself got in the action. He sees all of his people turning. And this wicked, fierce king, he augments the repentance and says, we've got to call upon the Lord urgently. Because there's never been an example where anybody was saved unless they called upon the Lord. It says in Acts chapter 4, 22, um, those who call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Didn't Paul write to the Romans and say, If we confess with what? Our mouths. That what? Jesus is Lord. No one's ever been saved unless they called on the name of the Lord. Urgently called on him. Unless they called out to him. Unless they confessed that he was Lord and master of their lives. And so he says urgently call on God. And then they turned it says here. You got to turn. We've got to turn from our evil ways and our wickedness. And notice that the king here. He absolutely humbles himself in verse 6. He rose from his throne and took off his royal robes. In other words saying I'm not worthy of royalty. There's only one royal, royal king in all the universe. And that is the living God. And he throws off his royal robes. And he covers himself with sackcloth and sat down in dust. He humbles himself before God. This is the journey of a truly repentant heart, one who's truly turned to God. They believe the message of God is true. They don't just believe God exists. They believe that God's word is actually true as delivered and that God can deliver on his word as he says. And then they turn to God by calling on him urgently and then turned from their wicked ways. They changed their mind on the way that they were going and turned from their wicked ways to God and put away their wickedness and evil. Producing the fruits of repentance, John the Baptist calls it. And what happens? When God saw what they did, And how they turned. See, 
when he saw them, what they did to turn to him and that they turned from, when God saw repentance, he had compassion and mercy and didn't repent, as the King James says. He relented because of his compassion. God, make no mistake about it, it's the worst translation in, the, in, the, in all of Scripture. God doesn't repent. Only sinners have to repent. It says in the King James, God repented of the evil he was about to do. That's probably the worst translation I've ever seen in my entire life. God relented from the calamity that he was about to bring. Only sinners have to repent, not God. God looks for a reason to forgive. He longs for a reason to be compassionate. That's who he is. And to those who recognize the rightness of God's justice, divine compassion will fall on them. These people recognized by their fasting and confession and falling down and wearing sackcloth that they deserved to be judged by God, but he was merciful to them instead. So what will we do with this? We are strict about justice, most of us. Sometimes more so than God. Because we have no idea about the connection between justice and mercy and the substitutionary penalty that Jesus Christ paid for all of us. And there are a number of reasons, I think, why we don't or won't evangelize, but this is one of them. We believe that really, really wicked people more wicked than us from our own perspective, have no business benefiting from God's grace. While we, on the other hand, guilty of only misdemeanors before God, are worthy of our salvation. The truth is, the wages of a sin is death. And we have to face that in our own lives before we will ever, ever turn our attention toward those who are far from God. He's not far from them. We misjudge the gravity of our own guilt toward God. And the truth is, and I think all of us are probably ready to admit this, that unless God were amazingly, graciously compassionate to us, to me, to any of us, no one would be saved. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning with great thanksgiving in my heart for your amazing grace. Oh Lord, we have multiplied sins among us. How wrong it is of us to look at people who are far from God, the people in our great cities, the people in our great city, and look down upon them because they are so far from you and so wicked and so evil. Oh God, Forgive us for that. Forgive us for the many times you've had to speak to us a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth time. When in fact those people who were far from God, if they received the message, they would respond the first time. Oh God, please keep us a missionary church. Keep our hearts soft toward those who are evil and wicked. For they don't know you. And but by the grace of God, we would be just like them. Oh God, help us to be your voice, your message, that repentance might come in cities great to God, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. reconciliation and forgiveness of God is not people getting off the hook. The reason that, G that the Lord God forgives and reconciles is because the Heavenly Father gave us His Son that He would take the hit for our sins. The fullness of God's wrath for all wickedness including the wickedness of the Ninevites, including the wickedness of me and you, was pounded on Jesus Christ at the cross. That we might be forgiven 
and freed and able to take the message of forgiveness and reconciliation to the world. That everyone's sin can be forgiven. No matter how wicked, no matter how far from God. And so we are here this morning freed by God from our sinfulness because of the justice of God whose Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took our punishment. And out of our gratitude, God is believing that we will take that message to people who have deeply, deeply wounded us and hurt us and damaged us because we hurt and damaged and wounded God. And he forgave us. Our Father, this morning, I just pray that the weight of this truth would rest in our lives in a fresh, powerful way. And Lord, that we might even now allow the Spirit of God to bring an image of an abuser, a someone who's hurt us, someone who's wounded us deeply, who is far from God. Bring them to our minds and our heart that we might pray with a profound desire for your grace to fall on them. Oh God, may we think of a a type of people, a wickedness, things that we turn away from in disgust and may we long for the grace of God to fall. Oh God, may the grace of God fall on Oshawa and on Whitby and on Brooklyn and on Curtis. May the grace of God fall on Ajax, Pickering and Toronto. Oh God. Because we are a great city to God. And and the wickedness of these cities has come to your attention. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.